0: Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 12. Oh, forgive me, that song, those songs that we sang, are so beautiful, proclaiming the glory of God, it's hard not to weep as you sing them, and uh, so give me just a minute. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12, we're going to read all the way through verse 30. Today we're focusing on verses uh, 12 through 21, but let's read all the way through verse 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, and not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So, Paul exhibits for us a fearlessness in Christianity. A fearless Christianity that refuses... To die. And I don't mean just a fearless Christianity that doesn't die, but a fearless Christianity that has tenacity and teeth to it that won't die. They try to stamp him out, and he converts the guards. They try to to lock him up, and he converts all the prisoners in there with him. They try to kick him out, and he obeys the government, gets kicked out, and saves everybody where he's kicked out. Or he leads them to see Jesus. He doesn't do, theologically, yes, he doesn't do the saving. That's Jesus. I get that. But he gets kicked out of a a city, and he uh, begins to proclaim the gospel where he was kicked out, and that part grows, and then he goes back into the city and proclaims the gospel there. This is a Christianity that cannot be defeated. It is a fearless Christianity that makes war on sin. A fearless Christianity that suffers well. Paul lives this insanely bold Christianity. And I want to say, just a caveat, it's insane except that it's true. His lifestyle is crazy except that it is the true, full life of Jesus Christ, and in that context, it's the only thing that makes sense. So he lives this fearless Christianity, and we see some of that in this text this morning. Paul lives in fearlessness. Christians suffer well, knowing that Christ has conquered death, that he has conquered death, and we are a we are able to suffer well because he has conquered death and there is a hope beyond this life that we wait for. Indeed, a hope that is beyond this life, but that has effect now. has effect now in changing our hearts. So let's look at Paul's statement here from prison. He's writing, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So understand what's going on first. The Philippians have heard that Paul has suffered, that he's been locked up, that he's been put in prison. No surprise to them, that's how their church started. Remember, when we studied the introduction, Paul started the church, or God started the church through Paul in prison. He gets put in prison, and the the prison shakes, and the earthquakes, and the bars and chains and everything fall off, and the Philippian jailer runs outside afraid that he is going to have to be face execution for his failure. And Paul calls out from inside, hey, we're still here, don't do it. He becomes converted and a believer. That his right here, the Philippian church started in a position from prison. Not only that, but the story before. He goes outside of the city to find any Jewish people and finds a group of ladies gathering for what we can assume was prayer. And Paul teaches them the gospel, and Lydia becomes a believer. This church starts, uh, yes baby, Lydia, I said your name, you are in the Bible. (laughs) The, The church starts with God moving in suffering. So Paul reminds them of this. Says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. When people see that Christians live above suffering, that Christians can endure suffering and hard times, when people see that, the gospel is advanced. When we suffer well, the gospel goes forward. Remember the Psalms. You pick me up from the miry pit and you place me on a rock. It doesn't say you take me out of all troubles and put me someplace where everything is happy. It says in the midst of our turmoil and struggle, we are placed on the rock, sturdy foundation. Though the mountains give way and fall into the sea, though the mountains fall into the sea, everything sure footing on this earth though all the sure footing everything we know everything we see though all of that fall into the sea Christ is forever stable and he is whom we stand on he is, whom Christ, he is whom God has lifted us up from the miry pit and put us on top of we can weather any storm as Christians because we stand on the rock so second here, so we see uh, it has served to advance the gospel, and then it says, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard. I love that. All, all of the guards know. You know, if you were in prison, I don't think you would talk as much to the guards as Paul must have. Paul must have been rattling, talking constantly to the guards. This, this guy is proclaiming the gospel All the time. All the Imperial Guard, it has become known to all the Imperial Guard, and all the rest, I love that he doesn't even specify there just because it's so broad, all of the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So it served to advance the Gospel. Second, it has served to expand the knowledge of Christ, particularly, particularly, in the area of sovereignty and purpose. Particularly in the area of sovereignty and purpose. This is amazing. Consider this. Paul's imprisonment is showing those who put him in the prison that they are not in charge. Paul's imprisonment, because of the way he suffers, because of the the God he serves, Because of Jesus Christ in him, flowing through him, his imprisonment is showing the people who put him in prison that they are not in charge. That his imprisonment is for Christ. He is showing them that through his imprisonment. The guards see that Jesus is king, not Caesar. The guards see that Jesus is king, not Caesar. And the rest of those, the rest around him, pretty much, he's saying everybody sees this. That Jesus is Lord. They see and they give testimony of Jesus' authority. That Jesus is the reason he is there. And that Jesus is the king of him in there. Paul, suffering advances the gospel. It advances the truth of the sovereignty of God. And then look at the next verse here. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When you suffer well, you encourage the rest of us. When you suffer well, you encourage... The rest of us, wherever you are, whatever your suffering is, if you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in your suffering, and you are standing up saying, Lord be praised, because he is worthy of all my praise. When you are doing that, you are are proclaiming the gospel to everyone, and everyone sees it, and everyone is emboldened by it. Paul says, my suffering emboldens the army of God. My suffering here emboldens the army of God. They are preaching the word without fear because he is suffering. It is important, brother and sister, it is important to maintain holiness amidst our suffering. We show a watching world what it looks like to love a king Who has placed us above suffering? We show a watching world what it looks like to serve a king who has placed us above suffering. Suffer well. Love well in your suffering. In your struggles, suffer and love well, that the world would see and turn and repent and say, Jesus is king. So Paul has this fearlessness here for those reasons. He gives you the result of his fearlessness. The gospel advances. Sovereignty is understood. Jesus is king. And the army of God is emboldened. And then we've got two areas here in the next two paragraphs. We've got two areas where Paul is fearless. Dedicated fearlessness. The first one is he's fearless in his reputation. He's fearless of his reputation. He is above reputation and fear of that. He is fearless of his reputation. And then the second one is he is fearless from death. Literal, physical death. Fearless of death. So, verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So there's his thesis. There are. There are people preaching from envy and rivalry, and others from goodwill. Now, just for a moment, uh, I want you to just put yourself where Paul is, and remember a time when you knew this was going on. You know what I'm talking about? That somebody over here was talking to somebody over here, behind you, about you. Remember that. And you've been preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel. Put yourself in Paul's position. You've been preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel, laying your life down on the line. You are in prison. You have been beaten for this word. And you hear from, you know, somebody said, did you know what they say about you? They, you hear about the they. Never trust a they, by the way. Anybody who ever says, they said, there's nobody there. They need to give you a name. They said who? You track it down so that there can be reconciliation. Because reconciliation doesn't happen with they. It happens with him or her. So They said. Cut that out. They said nothing. So, specifics. God works in specifics. But that's off track. So, Paul hears about this. People coming to him saying, you know what this person is saying over here? Or what this person is saying over here? And Paul, his response is, is the gospel being preached? That's his question. That's his question. Is the, is the gospel being preached? You see, reputation matters a great deal to us. In the United States in particular, um, in the West. We we care a great deal about what other people think. Honestly, we shouldn't. It shouldn't matter to us. Rather, we should remember these things. We should remember that I am a child of God. That I was once alienated and hostile in mind to God, doing evil constantly. And that He, through Jesus Christ, has reconciled me by his blood, to him, and I am now blameless and above reproach because of the work of Christ in my life. That's Colossians chapter 1. I'm blameless beyond question is the word that's used there before my Father. So if the judge of the universe, the judge of all the secrets of man, the judge who sees you in your darkest moment, calls you child and son and daughter and says, I love you, if that judge approves of me enough to save me, then what can man do to me? What can a man do to me? Oh, he can lock me up and he can throw me in prison. He can besmudge my reputation and drag me through the dirt. He can make me look awful here, But the one place that matters is heaven. And if I am God's child there, and I'm a servant of the Most High King, what does it matter? What does it matter? I'm a child of God. I'm approved by God in Scripture. People are far too concerned about reputation and far too little concerned about the gospel. We must be about the gospel. You want to live above, you want to live a fearless life, above reputation? You want to know what it's like to not have that anxiousness when you hear somebody go, you know what they said? You know that anxiousness that boils up in your chest? You want to live above that? Remember these things, that you belong to Jesus. That he has said you are approved of. That he has made you righteous and blameless and worthy. That he has set you above the suffering. And then remember the nature of man. These people who speak about you are far too concerned about themselves to really think about you. These people who speak about you are far too concerned about themselves to really worry about you. So join them in their worry and pray that they would repent and pray that they would trust the Lord. They are very concerned about themselves. Join them. Be concerned for them. Love them well and share the gospel. Consider how Jesus defended his reputation. Like Paul, Jesus uh, is beaten he is, uh, well, really, like Jesus, Paul is beaten, um, and he is dragged through the mud. And Jesus, whenever the Pharisees say something about him, how often does he actually address what they say? Very seldom. In fact, so rare is his address that at one point, he said, he looks at them and says, You whitewashed tombs, you complained that I, that John was too austere, and then you complained that I, Spend too much time in feasting. You, you are, you're ridiculous. Is, that's the extent of his response to them. He doesn't bother defending himself. He just says, what in the world? I'm the son of God. It's, it's and then he begins to, to drill into their heart. Right? Paul does the same with those who are around him. These men are speaking behind his back, uh, teaching things, saying things about him that are negative critiquing his ministry, critiquing his work, and yet Paul says that the gospel will go forth. Look, some indeed preach rivalry, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, and not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You got these two groups that are preaching. You got those who are preaching from goodwill. They're teaching the gospel from goodwill. I love these people. These people are great. They, they see our affliction, they see our struggles, and they join in the fight, and they preach the gospel. Yes, this is what you want around you. These are the people you want. They preach the gospel out of agape love. An agape love that motivates them to preach, the motive is unspecified love. Now, I want, I want people to think of me this way. That I am preaching the gospel out of love, and not rivalry. I want to be known as that. I want to be known as somebody who loves with an unspecified, self-sacrifice love. A love that requires nothing from you and takes everything from me what I want to be known as, the self-sacrificing, loving persons. I want to be known as that, and and my concern is not that you would know me as that, or that the guy down the street would know me as that, or that that my neighbor would know me as that, but that Jesus would know me as that, that he would look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant, you are proved, you have pleased God, oh, how great! It is to lay before the Father in prayer and know that you have pleased Him. And in that you can rejoice. Look at this. They they preach out of love knowing that He is put there for the defense of the gospel. Knowing that that Paul is there for the defense of the gospel. He they first they know they understand this is the word for understanding they understand that it that it is god's will that paul is there and they understand paul's role in the ministry they're not envious of his role they're not trying to take his position they're not trying to uh, demand that he do things their way or the way he wants they understand that this is where paul is He's in prison, they understand that, and they understand that this is his job. They don't want his job, they've got their own. They understand the role, knowing that he is put there for the defense of the gospel, and offering aid to him. So that's the first group, the first group that's preaching alongside Paul. Here's the second group. The former, those who preach out of rivalry and envy, they preach Christ, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So they, they preach out of rivalry or competition. Brothers and sisters, if there is anything you have learned coming to Sovereign Grace Fellowship, I hope you have learned that we are not in competition with other churches. No, our competition, our adversary is, is sin and the devil and death. Much worse than another church. We are not in competition with other churches. Nor are they in competition with us. And those that think they are, are in error. Those that act like they are, are in error. And Christ will correct them in His due time. For us, we proclaim the Gospel. We proclaim it freely, knowing that God is pleased with the proclamation of the gospel. Some preach out rivalry. Consider the character character traits here. Rivalry or competition. Consider their character traits here. I don't know if you ever played a sport, but it is hard to play a sport with somebody and not talk trash. This is trash talking. They're speaking behind Paul's back, and they're politically motivated in their service, in their actions and service. These are people who are politically motivated, who will preach the gospel in open public for the glory of their own name. And they're going to make sure everybody knows their name. They're going to make sure everybody hears their name. What's great about the book of Philippians is that their name is not spoken. Because Paul is not concerned with reputation. He is concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider the fact that Paul doesn't name any of them. He just lets it go. Look at what he does. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely but the thing to afflict me in my imprisonment. Did you notice he doesn't say a name? He doesn't tell you who the former are. Instead, he just says, there are people who preach out of love and sincerity, who are gracious and loving, and they have the right motive. And then there are those who preach out of competition and envy. And they want their name made great. And he doesn't tell you who they are. Why? Because Paul knows whose reputation, who whose eyes your reputation matters in. Only Jesus. Only Jesus' is. Eyes, does your reputation matter? Is Jesus pleased with you? And so Paul, rather than letting this drive a wedge into his heart, or make him anxious, or stir up that that sick feeling in the lower gut, you know what I'm talking about, the the gut feeling that's just, ugh when he hears these things, instead of letting that drive in what Paul does, he lets it go. He lets it go. And this isn't easy to do, but it's something that a mature Christian does. He lets it go. He lets go of offense. Just drops it. It's really hard to do. Don't get me wrong. But perhaps you're struggling with an offense this morning. Perhaps you're struggling with somebody who's done this behind your back. A Christian never needs to do this back. If somebody else wants to play political games behind your back, let them. We don't need to. We have a king who is in control of all things, who rules all things, and I am not afraid, and you should not be afraid, of the politics of this world. They hold no power. It is all Christ and only Christ. A Christian person never needs to shame somebody else by saying their names. And Paul models that for us. He says they preach out of rivalry, and then the second thing, they preach not from sincerity, or not sincerely, from a pure motive. The word here being pure or genuine motive. But they seek to raise up affliction. The word therefore. um to afflict me, thanking to afflict me, is to resurrect affliction. Did you know that once Christ has redeemed you and destroyed your sin, that it cannot be resurrected? That you have been resurrected to a new life and the old one is gone. The old man is dead, is what Scripture says. Dead doesn't get resurrected by other people. It can't be resurrected by other people. Seeking to resurrect affliction in a dead man is ridiculous. Paul has died. He lives in Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ within me. They seek to raise up affliction in him, to resurrect affliction. The adversary wants to raise up affliction by any means necessary. He wants to remind you of failure. He wants to remind you of past sins that have been forgiven. He wants to hold over you an expectation for living that is not biblical. He wants to set on you the law. He wants to raise up the former life. And say, This is who you are. He wants to talk behind your back and politically manipulate situations to draw you back into that wicked behavior. And it is wicked. I just want to be clear that kind of behavior, behind the back, backroom meetings, political uh, motivated, speaking to people, it's wicked. And if you're a pastor watching this and you're doing that, shame on you. We live our lives in the open. We live our lives in the open because Christ has set us free and we are no longer able to be afflicted by the things that he has killed. Paul says, they seek to afflict me. But if you would grasp, oh Christian, if you would grasp that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ, who could ever hurt you? If you could grasp that, Then Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 28, where he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can take the soul. Then you would tremble before God, worried about how he sees you, and disregard the way the world sees you. You would pursue holiness to such a degree that the world would look at you and think you're crazy. And you would say... It's not crazy if it's true, and it just so happens to be true. Oh, do not fear those who can kill the body, who can harm the body. Fear those who can harm. Who fear the one who controls the soul. He says here, they seek to inflict me in my imprisonment, and then here's the result of Paul's fearlessness over reputation. No addressing them, no scorning them, no turning back to give marching orders of how to handle false prophets or teachers, none of that. This is what he says, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He does, uh, I don't know, spiritual jujitsu here, where the adversary attacks him, and he turns the very attack to exalt Jesus. He turns the very attack of the enemy to exalt Jesus. It does not make him, it, it doesn't break him. And I want you to hear, Paul was a real person, a real man, who struggled with real difficulties. He's abandoned by people. He's neglected by people he thought were friends. And and he confesses it hurts. He knows how it feels. Yet he proclaims that Jesus Christ is greater. And in our hurts... And in our pains, when we're so worn out and exhausted because people have been talking behind our backs, or because political stuff is going on, and we've been trying to be faithful to proclaim the gospel and live holy. When when we see that and we hear that and we, we feel that weight, know that Paul felt that too. Indeed, in 2 Timothy, he says, Demas has abandoned me for the love of the world. Because he's hurt by it, and he's he's exhausted by it. He knows how it feels, and yet he gives us this example in Scripture. The Holy Spirit gives us this example of Paul being faithful to follow Jesus and imitate Christ. Likewise, we should imitate Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Fearlessness is and Christianity here is beautiful. Fearlessness of, repu- fearlessness of reputation is beautiful in that we see that the only reputation that matters is Jesus. And we want Him exalted. And so long as He is exalted and not repudiated or shamed, we are good. We are happy and excited because we have turned our eyes to Christ And we see to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We need not defend ourselves for His glory and His joy. He says, yes, in that I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, That I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For Christians here, fearlessness in Christianity finds its center in rejoicing. In rejoicing. And in rejoicing in gratitude to Christ. He started his letter with this thanksgiving prayer where he is thanking God for them and thanking God for his affliction and thanking God for where he is, knowing that God has put him there. So gratitude, what we're going to see in the book of Philippians is that gratitude leads to rejoicing. That gratitude is the central uh, central point of fearlessness in Christianity and rejoicing and praise is the results, the result. So I want you to do something, just right now for a moment, pause in the sermon, and I want you to think about something that you are grateful to the Lord for. Think about something specific. And just for a moment... Before we go any further, I want you to bow your head and thank God. It's not a long prayer. Thank you, God, for X. Let's do it. Amen. Now, proceeding. Forward we see here in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So first, note what Paul knows. He knows that prayer works. Prayer for me, this will work. Prayer works. We emphasize prayer in our church. And we want you to emphasize prayer in your personal life. So prayer works. That's the first thing. Second, prayer works in concert with the Holy Spirit. Prayer works in concert with the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, the, Holy, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So prayers work in concert with the Holy Spirit. It's not like you're sending prayers out into the void and God's just deciding, maybe I'll answer them, maybe I won't. No, your prayers are in concert with the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit moves in you to inspire prayer and inspire what you should pray, how you should pray. Uh, the way that parts of Scripture put it is that the Spirit groans when our hearts are unable to utter. The Spirit groans on our behalf. The Spirit prays on our behalf. The Spirit works in concert with our prayers to accomplish the work of of the Lord. And then he says, it will turn out for my deliverance. It will turn out for my deliverance. Now, um, Paul's definition of deliverance here is that he is going to live. And you know this because later on, that's what he says. He is going to live. He is confident that the Lord will set him free and that he will live. Because that is what's better for the people. This is what's better for the kingdom. And he says, also, I will not be put to shame. He says, it works as for my deliverance, it works for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame. This is a certain hope. He knows he's not going to be put to shame. And he knows he's not going to be put to shame because Christ is king. Christ is in charge. Christ is coming back. Christ is going to redeem Christ is the King. He knows He will not be put to shame. You can't shame someone who has surrendered everything. An application for us here. You can't shame a guy who is willing to be beaten and locked up in prison and destroyed for the gospel. You can't shame that guy. There's nothing for him to be shamed by. He knows. He's unashamed. I pray that we would be the same way. You can't shame somebody who is already broken. Indeed, Paul has recognized that he is broken. And that his restoration comes in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. And if we grasp how powerful that reality is, we will glorify God in our suffering. And then finally he says, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. So Paul knows these, these things, that prayer works, that prayer works in concert with the Spirit, that he it will turn out for his deliverance, that he will not be ashamed, and that whatever happens, Christ will be honored. Because he has surrendered everything to Jesus. And then he says this great phrase, Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, and die is gain. That's where we're going to stop this morning and conclude, just pondering that phrase. To live is Christ. Another way to say that phrase, to live is Christ, is to say, Christ is life. Christ is life. Meaning, he encompasses all of it. He is my motivation, my goal. He is what I aim for in life. He is life, and life itself. Christ is life. It's all that matters. Let that sink in just for a minute. Not Christ is more life. Not Christ is priority in life. Not Christ is uh, most of life. Christ is life, period. Without Christ, there is no life. Christ is life. It's not some of it. It's not first. He's all of it. He is life. Without him, there is no life. The longer you live on earth, the more time you have to know Christ. The more time you have to be conformed to His image. The more time you have to take advantage of suffering. Yes, to take advantage of suffering. The more time you have to know Christ. You have but little time on this earth. Spend it knowing what matters. Or rather, spend it knowing the one who matters. The more I am here on earth, the greater the opportunity I have to be more like Him. To live as Christ. Christ is life. The more opportunity I have to be more like Him, and oh, I want to be like Him. Oh, I want to be like Him. Then the second half of that phrase is, to die is gain. To die is gain. What do I have on this earth that compares to heaven? The answer is nothing. What do I have on earth? That compares to heaven. Nothing. Remember that great quote that we have wrestled with, that we wrestled with all through Hebrews. There are no rules for architecture when your castle is in the clouds. If we will focus on heaven and see the glory of heaven, then we will know the joy of that focus. So just giving you something to ponder for a moment. We can be fearless in our reputation because we are surrendered to Christ, because we know we matter to Him, because we know we belong to Jesus. We can be fearless in our reputation. We can be fearless in the face of death because we live for Christ. Because indeed our old self has been uh, crucified with Him and we have been set free from sin and are able to live in righteousness. We can be fearless because Jesus has done the work of righteousness for us. Indeed, in his death on the cross, he took our sins upon himself, and in his resurrection, he gave us life that we might worship and adore him. So, I want to ask you for a moment to consider this fearlessness. Do you live in this fearlessness? Do you live in the fearlessness of Christ? He has redeemed and rescued you. Do you live in this fearlessness or do you need to repent?